be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. And today, we're looking at the 29th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 28, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 21, episode 29, or what the German regionalization team named Night of the Decision, and the larger fan community somehow later voted to name Miss Twin Peaks. I'm your host, John. In episode 28, Leo can't free himself from his shackles, but he does free fellow prisoner and mostly incoherent Major Briggs, who barely makes it out of Windermere's cabin before Earl returns to later learn from his bug transmission in the sheriff's station Cooper's intuitive connection that fear opens the door to the Black Lodge. Readying for the Miss Twin Peaks competition, Norma cheers on contestants Shelley and Annie, and reforming Ben commiserates with Audrey and learns about the Packard's plans for Ghostwood before convincing her to enter the pageant. The contestants learn a dance routine, Lana tries to get Dick in her pocket, and Dale meditates before Annie arrives to talk speech writing and they awkwardly get into bed together. Nadine shows wrestling slides, Ed and Norma talk marriage. The Packards finally get into that metal box to find a key. Donna confronts her parents one last time about her mom's connection to Ben Horn. And Major Briggs shows up in the sheriff's station to trigger a chain of intuition that reveals Earl's bug in the bonsai tree. And catches Cooper up on the Jupiter-Saturn connection. And that the Queen of Miss Twin Peaks will be used by Earl to enter the lodge, though it'll take Andy's connection that the petroglyph is a map before they can put the pieces together. And thanks to them ignoring Andy, that happens at the end of the episode, well after Miss Twin Peaks commences, Pinkle hits on the log lady. Bobby gets hit by Earl as the log lady, Lucy does the splits, Lana entrances, Audrey and Annie give great speeches, Donna learns Ben is her father, Lucy chooses Andy to be her baby's father, and Annie wins the competition only to be abducted by Earl in the middle of strobe-lit chaos and smoke bombs. Now, a path is formed by laying one stone at a time, so what questions are we left with in this episode? What is going on with Dale, Cooper, and Time? Why is Wyndham Earl so much scarier here? Just how many different levels of keys are we working with? What signs do we see of what could have been with Audrey Horn? And what ways do we see Laura Palmer being invoked once again? 
But of course, before we do that, I'm going to start looking into the background details around the episode when it was made. Now, for viewers, since the last episode aired, Twin Peaks had been canceled. Since April 18th, when episode 27 aired, uh, we have Kimmy Robertson uh, being at an actual event uh, promoting uh, network shows where Bob Iger came over to her and said, we love you, to assure her Twin Peaks wasn't being canceled. You know, soon after that, we've got the Star Picks trading cards released, and then the Cooper autobiography was released. But then on May 22nd, Twin Peaks did not appear on ABC's reported fall schedule, as, as author and Twin Peaks fan Scott Ryan is fond of saying, alongside China Beach and 30-something. The uh, three worst cancellations of all time happened all at once for him. <laughs> Poor guy. And, uh, you know, he's pretty much right, too. Uh, but anyway, this is almost a full month after the network decided not to air the remaining two Twin Peaks episodes with the other four that they were trying to burn off in April. Because, it, you know, based on the um, the ratings of those April episodes, I'm pretty sure they figured out at ABC that they'd rather air the remaining two episodes together in June as a Monday night movie rather than airing them during sweeps weeks that determine the value that they can charge for advertisements in their Thursday night time slot. Now, this announcement of ABC's new fall schedule came 20 days before this episode and episode 29 aired. There may still have been hope from some people that the network could do an about-face and uh, Twin Peaks could be renewed, but viewers at the time, like me, pretty much knew that this was it. But back when this episode was made, Twin Peaks didn't exactly know that. The The first draft of this episode was written, or, you know, completed on February 5th, which was just before the first hiatus took place. And the final draft took place, I mean, finished up in February 22nd, which was just after the hiatus. And those dates pretty much tell me that this was likely entirely filmed after the hiatus was put in place, and uh, definitely before the announcement that the show would be airing its final six episodes at all. So I'm betting that the staff assumed that they were getting paid for something that wouldn't even air on television. But honestly, it wasn't all gloomy around the set. I mean, I've heard that Amber Tamblin, Rashida Jones, and Emily and Zoe Deschanel would actually play together behind the scenes of Twin Peaks as their parents acted in front of the cameras. And um, this, along with episodes 8, episode 24, and 29, are when we have Peggy Lipton, Russ Tamblin, and Mary Jo Deschanel on set acting. So there's almost 100% chance in these episodes that those future actresses were all back there behaving like the grade schoolers that they were then. And then there were other moments of light on, on the set. I mean, Kimmy Robertson talking about Lucy's dance in this episode with Twin Peaks unwrapped she uh, she said I was at my desk on the set and David Lynch and Mark Frost were down the hallway like if you were looking down from my desk straight down the hall they were down there sort of twittering back and forth like two old aunties and um, she shared with Brad Dukes in reflections that she knew that they were talking about her and her first thought then was oh my god they're gonna fire me <laughs> and uh, back in the Twin Peaks Unwrapped interview that she had uh, she was like oh no what am I or what am 
what am I going to have to do now? It says, you know, they literally came up as they walked. It was almost like their knees were tied together. I mean, Kimmy Robertson, um, th- there's a reason why she's so good at the Lucy dialogue. It's really fun, and she's super endearing. But they say, you know, we have something we want you to do. And she says, I knew it. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, they, want to dance, or they want her to dance. And she says, what kind of dance? They say, uh, you know, for the talent portion in Miss Twin Peaks contest. And she says, do they want real dancing or Disney dancing? And they say, you know, Disney dance. She got to use her own music, which she used Mac the Knife for. And she said she was aiming for comfy, uh, for corny and uplifting. Though probably, you know, thinking about the splits at the end, she said in uh, Essential Wrapped in Plastic to John Thorne that I was approaching my character like Nadine. It was like my character had gone insane because, you know, in Twin Peaks and Rep, she said, you know, everybody was worried about me because I was pregnant, you know. They forget that this is not really happening. So, <laughs> so yeah, I guess that dance is officially Lucy having a, a break <laughs> with reality, according to Kimmy Robertson. But, you know, so she had fun with it. And, um, you know, she was dancing for 35 years at that point, so I'm pretty sure she at least had fun that day putting it together. And Robin Lively had fun with it, even though she knew she wasn't the greatest dancer, but, you know, not everybody there was having a good time. And um, in Reflections, Sherilyn Fenn shared that the pinnacle of frustration for me was when they had a beauty show or something and all the girls were dressed up, the whole show was starting to feel like it had lost its way. It wasn't character motivated, it was, let's get the girls in a fashion show i just remember reading it and going no it was the only time i ever went to david and mark and said there's no way they said but we have to have you there can you make an announcement for your dad's business and i said fine that's why i wasn't up there it was dumb i hated the whole second season so yeah she's uh She's had ruffled feathers about the whole second half of the season thing, and I assume it's probably related to the whole next romance nonsense, but, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, she's allowed to also have her heckles raised about this stuff, and, um, you know, she wasn't the only one anyway. I mean, in the in the actual film stuff, like, you know, the backstage of uh, Miss Twin Peaks, like when everybody's on break after their choreography, you can see Mansion Amick and Lara. Flynn Boyle spotted exhibiting a bit of rebellion too. I mean, you could see them smoking and mocking off to the corner in dance rehearsal scenes. You know, I, I get all their frustration, you know, even though it probably started from like May, May, May Queen ceremonies, you know, where a sacrifice had to be made to ensure a successful harvest and all that, you know, going back to pagan rituals, which I will be talking about a bit later. I bet it was written by folks who also knew that the show had these knockouts and maybe thought it was ridiculous to not put them all there for viewers to ogle on purpose. You know, it might be good for ratings or something. You know, regardless of why they did it, for all these reasons why the cast might be frustrated or worried about, you know, like, is it ever going to air you know tim hunter came back to direct this episode and he picked up on all of that when he returned now previously he'd done season one's episode four with the llama and season two's episode 16 where leland dies and um between reflections essential wrapped in plastic and twin peaks unwrapped tim hunter painted a pretty solid picture of his experience and i'm gonna kind of blend them all together here for you he said 
I wanted to see the cast and everyone one last time since the first two had been so special. I was excited to go back and do that penultimate episode because I'd had such a great experience on the show. I was sad to find that the actors had become cynical about it. Quite a contrast from their energy and excitement doing the great first season material. At that point, the spirit of the show had dampened. Some of the actors became more cynical. I think, objectively speaking, there was some feeling that the storyline hadn't lived up to the first season. Now, one of the goals that uh, Tim Hunter gave himself was to set the table for Lynch. And he said, Everybody knew the show had been canceled. David was coming back to do the last episode. You just knew that David Lynch was going to do something that was more abstract and personal and phantasmagorical and somatic for episode 29. I always felt they used me to some extent as a utility man on that show. There were those times where I went right before David, and I felt that my function was to kind of clarify the story, get the story into focus in the minds of the audience so that David could then come in and do whatever the hell it was he wanted to do. The show had fallen prey to a certain kind of directorial overachieving, so I decided to do the next-to-last episode without any camera movement. I tried to give David the cleanest possible episode to set up whatever extravagant finale he had in mind. And how he particularly went about directing all those um, still camera shots. He says, Everything was predicated on Frank Byer's unwillingness to do more than 16 setups per day. The show looked great, but you hope for at least 24 setups a day on a TV show, even more. So, you know, your podcaster here, I'm saying Byers had done every shot of every episode to that point and had likely burned himself out. So Hunter may not have believed the small number of setups, but I'm not surprised to see that note. He he went on to say, I didn't believe it when they told me. So I actually went over to the production reports to see how many setups he was averaging. And in fact, it was steadfast around 16. So I had to reduce the scope of the coverage considerably and had to figure out how I was going to do the show with a lot fewer shots than what I was used to getting. So that's pretty much solidifying why he chose a minimalist approach on this episode. He said he watched Ozu's Tokyo Story and some other minimalist films and, in his words, told myself I was directing a Japanese-style falcon crest. And then he says, that's why I blacked out the bad guys, Wyndham Earl's teeth out in the opening, an homage to the Ozu and Mizuguchi pictures I watched while prepping for the episode. If you look at those Mizuguchi Geisha films that are so wonderful, The Life of Oharu and other films in that period, I guess it was fashionable in those days to black the teeth out. Besides remembering that, he also remembers telling the crew packing up the roadhouse props at the time to carry the moose across the stage. So, did he actually tell the crew member to carry it quite like he does? I mean, you know, who can say, but I bet Hunter thought it was funny or it wouldn't have stayed in. You know, based on the writer-director pairing this episode, I would have figured that that would have been more of a touch from writer Barry Pullman. But, you know, there you go. It came from the director. 
Now, bringing Barry Pullman into this, Ashley Brandt from Twin Peaks Peaks knows kind of what I mean here. She said, Pullman's kind of from the slapstick, goofy side of Twin Peaks, while Hunter's expertise is more on the serious and supernatural side. I'm paraphrasing her here. But her point was, it makes for an odd pairing that kind of comes out in this episode. To kind of explain a little bit more about what Barry Pullman has done on this show, Joel Bacco's Lost in Twin Peaks podcast points out how Pullman wrote all of the episodes that has Tim Pinkle delivering dialogue. And um, I had never noticed that before. Yeah, so he has a penchant for... um you know, the, the screwball stuff for sure. Joel also said that um, Pullman apparently wrote a ton more scenes for this episode that are between Dale and Annie professing their love together. Now, I, as your podcaster, if I had to guess, everyone probably by then knew that there'd be too much script to film. It would have been there for Hunter to pick and choose from as far as, you know, like which ones he thought was felt most appropriate. Or really, maybe it was dropped because of Hunter's minimalism mandate where like he knew he wasn't going to get as many scenes as he was expecting initially. Or, you know, maybe, you know, if there would have been time, had there been more shots available, maybe Pullman was just thinking that the Cooper-Annie relationship needed all those scenes to help him sell the romance that was going to cross a threshold sexually in this episode. You know, I, I don't know. It's it's all conjecture on my part, but I find it really fascinating that all those scenes actually existed in the script. But one thing we can't blame on Pullman is the odd cliffhanger ending with Andy revealing the knowledge to Cooper that the petroglyph was a map that was uh, essentially the final proclamation when Merle, the exact last episode. Pullman didn't actually write that as a repetition of a cliffhanger. It just kind of happened during the filming process. Uh, per Essential Wrapped in Plastic, John Thorne notes a different deleted scene when Cooper locks eyes with Earl on the catwalk and leaps up there to confront him before Earl would swing down, scoop Annie up, and disappear into the night. But that scene was actually never shot, and therefore we never actually got to see Cooper confront Earl. It's it's a really interesting choice by Hunter to skip the only major face-to-face conflict that the two would have actually had in the series, and probably it was because Hunter figured that it would fit nicer in the season finale alley and uh you know he'd give lynch that honor but you know that was predicated on the assumption that lynch would actually narratively want to do something like that so uh yeah it was a gamble that maybe just didn't pay off for hunter who knows but you know considering peaks's penchant for circular storytelling it actually kind of fits the vibe anyway circling around the same kind of conclusions you know like how there's generational trauma and you know uh 2017 twin peaks thinks like you know there's always a truman in the sheriff's department you know things like that you know why can't cliffhangers also be kind of cyclical though you know for the own for for this episode as a solo product um it probably would have been more satisfying in the episode's narrative arc to actually have the physical confrontation at the end but as this episode didn't actually air on its own uh you know it aired back to back with episode 29 for the first time that aspect tends to kind of become less of a problem with people who watched it then and who just kind of associate them together as a part one part two of the finale and speaking of 
how that happened. I, I know I have mentioned it at the beginning, but it aired on June 10th of 1991 as the front half of ABC's Monday Night Movie of the Week, which was a move laid out earlier by ABC when they were um, during the ending credits of episode se- uh, 27. This episode was watched by 10.4 million viewers, which was 100,000 viewers more than episode 19, which was the first show that aired in January of 1991 after the holiday break. So this is the, the biggest ratings earner of the year of 1991. But then you look back at episode 18, which was the last episode to air in December of 1990, this episode was 1,700,000 less viewers than that one. So, uh, you know, and that was back when the show was already in danger of being canceled and put on hiatus and all that. So, you know, while this number was much better showing than the 7.4 million viewers that stayed to watch episode 27 about almost eight weeks earlier, it was still too few viewers to reverse the cancellation. And honestly, the uh, 10.4 million viewers was probably probably padded with people like me and my parents who only came back to the show for old time's sake to see how it would all end. And, uh, you know, uh, holy shit, that was a kick in the teeth that I was not counting on, but that'll be a story for next episode. Because while episode 29 did come after the length of only a commercial break back then, this podcast is looking at them as separate episodes that would air a week apart from one another, as these episodes were initially designed to be by the makers of the show. And speaking of one of the makers of the show... What did David Lynch have to say about this about three years later when he was making the Log Lady introductions with uh, Catherine Coulson for the Bravo re-airings? The Log Lady had this to say, A log is a portion of a tree. At the end of a cross-cut log, many of you know this, there are rings. Each ring represents one year in the life of the tree. How long it takes to grow a tree... I don't mind telling you some things, many things I, I mustn't say. Just notice that my fireplace is boarded up. There will never be a fire there. On the mantelpiece, in that jar, are some of the ashes of my husband. My log hears things I cannot hear, but my log tells me about the sounds, about the new words. Even though it has stopped growing larger, my log is aware. Okay, so looking in some pieces of the iconography here, a crosscut is a ring of circles, one year each. So it's all about the time that it takes to create a ring. Time is baked into the logic of the imagery that Lynch is using. I know back when I was coming up with my timequake theory, um, I used the idea of a crosscut log as like points that are most important kind of stay there while the center creates ripples from it and um, can possibly change the why inside it. And like you can see the shape of the way lodges, etc., might be able to alter reality kind of in a wave uh, from a center point out over time. You know, it's a little bit loose, but I mean, thematically, it still kind of fits. And, you know, I know that's my pet theory, but um, there's a lot more of a whole bunch of people's pet theories focused on how there's no ability to use the fireplace in her cabin. You know, there's no fire 
in her place. I mean, it will not threaten the log, you know, so it, it keeps her fire. I mean, it keeps her log safe from being able to be burned, but, um, it also cuts off the fact that, you know, the fire cannot listen to what goes on inside, you know, the fire and the owls, the owls can't hear you in here. You know, I, I feel like the access through fire is kind of similar to that, you know, fire and owls must go together in at least some ways. Margaret talking about her husband's ashes on the mantle. Um, he was taken by fire. So maybe that's another reason why Margaret may have a grudge or, you know, a little bit of uh, PTSD against fire. You know, it's like it, it, it could take her husband, but it's not going to take this log. And she says, you know, about her log that can hear unhearable things. It makes me think of the unplugged professor from the uh, Wonderful and Strange Logcast podcast. You know, the unplugged professor says, she knows more, but the log knows most. Yeah, so like the log, even though it was cut down, even though it can't you know, grow any larger. It does not make it less aware. And um, that kind of makes me think about I am dead, yet I live, about the Laura Palmer tulpa, possibly, from uh, inside the lodge space that flipped open her face to the light. I mean, to reveal the light. But, you know, that's um, maybe a little bit loose, but, you know, in, in Twin Peaks, being alive is not necessarily the only way to be a part of everything and to be aware of everything. So, it tracks and it does rhyme with tulpas at the very least and you know margaret delivering this sort of a explanation right here it really hits home with you know the severity of what earl does when he kind of subverts her likeness and you know takes on her her accoutrements as a costume during the miss twin peaks competition you know it's like he's subverting this local spirituality for his own ends and um, it works on multiple levels in that competition. But really, that's about all I can say about the Log Lady intro right now. So I'm going to move forward, you know, onto the rest of the episode, which means right now it's time to hear from words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, so welcome back. We are going to start in on our first big question, which is... What is going on with Dale Cooper and time? So, I mean, as a viewer, it's um, it's got a pretty good experience of watching it. Like, it's got a good flow for the most part, but there's something weird going on, and time really is moving strangely in this episode. It's especially interesting to me because Tim Hunter directed the last episode where time wonkiness really held center stage for me. Okay, so episode 16, that's the one where Leland dies, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of the big capper to the whole Laura storyline. There are so many events that are so compressed in that episode where, you know, character moments were basically just stripped out of the show entirely because they needed to cram in about an episode and a half's worth of plot into a single episode. 
And in that episode, I'm pretty sure that breakneck pace was in part due to the fact that we shouldn't notice that Leland Palmer was unable to practice due to his charges in the murder of Jacques Renault, you know, and, and also, you know, maybe he wouldn't have complicated, you know, maybe he would have uh, complicated feelings for representing Ben Horn when the charge is killing his daughter, especially considering what he did to the last guy who took that, you know, who took on that arrest charge. But, you know, the plot was moving so crisply and we kind of already knew the answer anyway that like, you know, they just took away every ounce of ability for us to notice that um, Leland got into the sheriff's station under really strange circumstances that wouldn't really work. And here we have in this episode, things almost being too spread out in the other direction. You know, all Andy needed to do was say one thing, that the petroglyph was a map. And, you know, I mean, he works in a question about the 4-H club while Cooper and Harry are speaking about things. You know, he could have blurted it out because it's, you know, very important, which he's good at in, in part 14 of season three. But, you know, instead here, he doesn't even say anything about the petroglyph being a map when everybody's standing still looking at the bug that's revealed in Wyndham Earl's bonsai tree after Andy accidentally breaks it. And, you know, then Andy follows them to Miss Twin Peaks. Um, you know, so like, yeah, I mean, you think he could have shouted it in the parking lot on the way over, but you know, he's hypnotized by Lana when he walks in on camera, which, you know, it's a fine enough joke in the short term that, you know, Lana has her pheromone thing, but, um, why would it stall him until well after the show was over and the strobe lit abduction was already completed? And, you know, Lucy was even able to snag him and Dick together to let him know that he's the desired father for her kid. Maybe that moment is what snaps him back into feeling responsible and therefore kind of remembering that he had something to share with Cooper. Regardless, it should have been before that, even before any Lana hypnotism. So I understand that that was the cliffhanger that was chosen to end this episode. I mean, the, the episode's big question is, can Cooper catch up with Earl's understanding before Earl gets his queen? So, you know, from a narrative point of view, the answer to Cooper's plot of the episode is yes. And, you know, it also adds, but is it too late? But, you know, there's still a way to get there. And then have a confrontation at the end between Cooper and Earl, as I spoke of earlier in one of the deleted scenes. But, you know, that that would have, um, hearing that the petroglyph you know, had a map and everything, that would have been even more reason to cancel the Miss Twin Peaks event in the first place when Harry and Cooper got to the competition. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of common sense that does not prevail in this episode, even though there's a ton of room for it to do so. Sparkwood and 21 podcast fellow feedbacker with me, um, Daniel, he was basically saying, why wouldn't they just cancel the event? And yeah, it's, it's, um, always stood out to me ever since he pointed it out, you know, they would have had a chance to discover all the planted smoke bombs. You know, they could have, uh, 
you know, at minimum, even if they didn't cancel it, they could have created a plan to protect the queen while the event was happening rather than, you know, listening to the contestants give their speeches, etc. Or, um, you know, maybe take all the contestants into custody uh, before there's a winner announced. You know, there's all sorts of ways they could have done and plenty of time to do it in. You know, honestly, this could have used all that compressed time that episode 16 was afforded, whereas the other one could have used all the breathing room that this one has. So there's sort of an inversion here. But I mean, I think the inversion's probably a little bit more more meta than that, too, because I suspect Mikey from Cooper Duper podcast is absolutely right in that um, the season two finale that Frost and Peyton and Engels were working on turned out to be an episode and a half's worth of material. And um, the half of an episode got expanded out into a full episode here. Now, the way it was executed here, it it feels like we suffered from a whole bunch of false conflict that could have easily been solved by Andy being slightly less polite. It would have been better for the pace of the episode in one way, but that would have given Cooper too much information. And and based on his intuitive jump to Saturn and Jupiter in this episode, aligning, that he got from Andy mentioning the 4-H club, that would have basically put the opening scene to next episode into this episode instead, based on how much Cooper has with his intuition. So, you know, from a pacing point of view, maybe that was another one of their thoughts. I don't know. Um, All I know is that Cooper is locked into intuition for sure in this episode. So sometime after his first meditation that is in lieu of sleep, we've got that first sheriff station scene where the bonsai tree is in the shot and Harry and Cooper are getting on the topic of Earl when when they're discussing how combing the woods for the major could coincide with Earl because Cooper's thinking, you know, due to their Project Blue Book connections, that uh, the major is being targeted by Earl. So Cooper says that he knows Wyndham Earl has been seeking access to the Black Lodge as far back as 1965 and that the chess game may involve more pieces than they know. And this is when Cooper finally admits to Harry that when Josie died, she was quaking with fear, and that's what seemed to kill her, the fear. And then Cooper says that he saw Bob then, too, as if he had slipped through some crevice in time. So more comments that lead into time wonkiness and um, time being a place as well as a concept. So... um Cooper supposes that Bob might have been attracted to Josie's fear specifically, in Cooper's words, feeding off it somehow. So, you know, that obviously makes me think of Garmin Bosia at the end of the movie, uh, Fire Walk With Me. You know, Cooper goes on to say that he suggests Bob came from the lodge, which Cooper connects the lodge and the evil in these woods as the same thing under different names. And Cooper says, if Wyndham Earl is seeking access to that, it is imperative that we find our way in before he does. There is a source of great power there, Harry, far beyond our ability to comprehend. So I assume Cooper means that they're doing it to guard the door, essentially, but it's kind of the wrong way to think about the place, I'd wager. But, 
you know, his his intuition gets most of the nuts and bolts right. It's just his understanding what to do with that information that's kind of falling behind still. Next time we see Cooper, he's in his room speaking that he had just meditated a second time in lieu of sleep. And him saying it so plainly, it makes me think about how he was really low on sleep right before he got shot at the end of season one. And it also makes me think how meditation, being in lieu of sleep, it, it's sort of like, is the meditation kind of aligning him in more of a lucid dream kind of way to reality? Yo, Cooper describes himself as feeling completely refreshed, feeling all of us live at only a fraction of our potential. And as your podcaster, I'm thinking maybe that is what's leading Cooper to all these intuition connections that are sort of already beginning and begin even more sooner. And then, you know, he discusses here about working on the petroglyph and is convinced that they and Earl are searching for the same thing for diametrically opposite reasons. God help us if he gets there first. So he's focusing on what Earl will do with the power when he gets it, and there's a fear there kind of underlying Cooper's thoughts. You know, even though he's meditating, he still has a fear of Earl and what Earl will do. But, you know, at this point in Cooper's room, Annie arrives, and um, then he and Annie, you know, connect through talking about the trees and everything. I'll be talking about this in a little bit. But, you know, they, they end up beginning to have sex, which would possibly help tune him to a certain level of unlocking truth, you know, thanks to possibly opening a real love it's it's something to think about, and I'll be talking about that in a little bit, too. But, you know, in the meantime, this is about when Hawk brings the Major to the station after he catches the Major trying to cross the street with a cop car coming toward him. And with the Major there in the room and Cooper's intuition going into, like, hyperdrive at this point, he says, Harry, we're in trouble. If the door to the Black Lodge exists, it probably exists at a point in time, and I'm paraphrasing him here, how a door usually exists in time and space, and shooting stars exist at a continuum of space, and he knows if we're not on the right place at the right time, we're not going to find our way in. And Cooper saying that line, this is when Andy interrupts and asks, Sheriff, could the 4-H club have anything to do with this? And, you know, Harry just says, doubtful, Andy. And note that, you know, Harry doesn't really believe in Andy's train of thought. And all future thoughts are addressed to Cooper from this point forward, probably because of that belief not being connected. You know, a few scenes later... We've got Cooper and Harry still at the station, and the 4-H clue actually leads Cooper to note the precise planetary positions of Jupiter and Saturn uh, show them in conjunction, which Cooper says, which would lead into an explosive change for good or bad. And he discovers that the alignment is from January to June. From a Nuts and Bolts TV perspective, that allows the conjunction to open from before Laura died on February 24th. So that leaves room for, you know, Leland going into the Red Room afterward and um, all the dreams that Laura may or may not 
have been able to have, et cetera, et cetera. And going to June allows that conjunction to remain available, you know, assuming that each episode continues to take the place over the course of one day for three full more seasons worth of episodes, if need be. And, you know, from a showrunning perspective, you know, why close the doors to the Red Room if you don't have to? Or, you know, I should say the Black and White Lodges anyway, uh, because the Red Room doesn't get connected till Lynch arrives, really. But, you know, Cooper's talking about the conjunction, the time frame and everything, and Briggs is still there, you know, shaking like a leaf and everything. But, you know, with that information, he chimes in with reactions of his own to protect the queen, fear and love open the doors. So Cooper extrapolates from that two doors, fear opens one, love the other. And Harry says, what does it mean? And Cooper, you know, importantly, he doesn't give credit to anything. He says, I don't know. It just came to me. So he's working on intuition and he does not have understanding. Note that. And, you know, with this intuition that's just coming to him, probably like a river, um, he says, the queen, you know, Harry's of Romania, <laughs> to go along with uh, Briggs' line about the queen, uh, the king of Romania could not attend, you know, the non sequitur. So that was kind of a funny way to put a joke in. And, you know, then Cooper says, no, the chess game's final piece. And, uh, you know, then he goes on another tear, making connections over and over. And this is well, Andy politely tries to reveal his own connection. You know, he'd like to speak right then. That is, unless Cooper is too busy. You know, paraphrasing how Andy tried to get Dick Tremaine on the phone a few episodes ago. But, you know, Andy makes his couple of attempts and Cooper shuts him down completely twice. Then Cooper walks out with Harry to Miss Twin Peaks to protect the queen. This is when Andy chases after and knocks down the bonsai tree. You know, Harry and Cooper recognize that there's a bug in it and um, knows that it's Earl's bug and that Earl is way ahead of them. And Cooper, on their way out the door, says, and that they've been working for him from the beginning. You know, do they shut down the competition? Heavens no. <laughs> anyway, Andy calls out to them after they've left while Briggs continues to shake in his blanket. You know, leaving Briggs in that state as well as Andy, um, that's another way this episode feels a lot like episode 16. Cooper left in a rush in that episode after he got information from the one uh, from uh, Philip Gerard. And, you know, Gerard was in a state just like Briggs in a lot of ways, except at least Doc Hayward was with him, you know, administering medicine or whatever. But, you know, Cooper didn't exhibit any even empathy for uh, Gerard right there. And he's not exhibiting much empathy for Briggs right here either. You know, when, when Cooper is running on intuition, his empathy really seems to take a major backseat. And at this point, it's a consistent character trait to pay attention to. But from this moment of walking away from Andy's thoughts about It's a Map, Cooper's intuition essentially gets him nowhere from the minute that he gets to Miss Twin Peaks. You know, is it because he's kind of walking away from Andy's intuition? Or is it because love makes him blind? And, you know, now I'm going to loop back to Cooper and Annie. So... Does his lucid dreaming adjacency when he's speaking to Diane allow him to manifest a dream that he wants? I mean, he's not exactly a magician here, but, um, you know, we have it the, in, in the second scene of the episode, we've got Norma saying that she expects to see Annie or Shelley in the winner's circle. 
And, you know, Annie just says, dream on when thinking about herself being able to win the competition in the end. But dream could possibly be helping here. So, you know, I mean, it's it's a dream-adjacent theme, whether or not there's actual magic afoot. And the plot of the episode is um, helping us allow Cooper to to get in bed with his new girlfriend. Because even though it seems kind of like it needs a little bit of help and a little bit more time for them to get to know each other better, near the beginning of the episode, we've got Audrey talking to Ben about Jack, John Justice Wheeler. And she says, it's only been a day. I hope it doesn't hurt this much in a week. And, you know, Ben says, time heals all wounds. And Audrey says, we barely had any time to know each other and we get Ben's line but the time you had was highly concentrated and then Audrey says it's the concentrate they may concentrate from so if that can happen to Audrey it can happen to Cooper I guess yeah if she can feel that way about someone in apparently not much time you know Cooper can feel the same way about Annie And, you know, for a fresh viewer like me who skipped the previous nine episodes, you know, whoever Annie might be, you know, it's like, I guess it's okay that this scene is happening. The scene with Cooper where he's talking to Diane in his room, you know, talking about feeling completely refreshed and that all of us live at only a fraction of our potential. You know, maybe maybe part of his potential that he doesn't usually live at is beginning to manifest Annie here. You know, when he chooses to make specific mention of Annie Blackburn, she is a completely original human being. Her responses, as pure as those of a child, I must be honest, I haven't felt this way about a woman since Carolyn. And then he notes about his solitary nature. So um, there are some phrases that really stick out here. You know, a completely original human being. I mean, that kind of a response basically makes me feel like when Doppelcooper tells Phyllis Hastings, you follow human nature perfectly before shooting her. Maybe it's due to Cooper's meditation and the lucid dreaming adjacency kind of thing where he's kind of like spaced out a little bit. You know, maybe that'll explain the tone or maybe it explains how he can sort of manifest that Annie will be at his door, like, you know, now that he's talking about her. And why Annie is there, she needs to begin, complete, and present a speech in six hours' time. And she's in a sweaty panic and needs to speak to Dale. So he figures out that she's terrified of public speaking. And, you know, they start talking about topic possibilities. They end up equating how uh, saving lives is fairly equivalent to saving trees, which matches well with the Log Lady introduction. But they shift over to the personal while still maintaining the metaphor of trees, as if uh, Cooper and Annie are both trying to stay on task, but they just can't. And, um, you know, I mean, unfortunately, the effect comes off as (laughs) wooden, but Cooper basically changes gears and says, your forest is beautiful and peaceful. And then Annie answers in the same metaphor, saying, part of it's been damaged. I've tried to replant, but nothing's taking root. Every forest has its shadow. So her mentioning shadow makes me connect to doppelgangers as well. Um, You know, the shadow self, the dweller in the threshold, all that stuff. And it's interesting to be said when they're talking in metaphors about Annie having trees and um, 
a forest of her own. And uh, the Diane podcast particularly says about this scene that she is Twin Peaks. She is the woods. And if she is the woods of Twin Peaks, this is the person that Cooper decides to connect with physically and sexually. And, uh, you know, he enters the metaphorical woods with her physically. The episode before, he enters the physical and metaphorical woods bodily in the next episode. And then Annie says another thing that's basically sounding to me kind of like it should be a red flag for, like, maybe we should uh, step back first. But uh, she says, I can see half my life's history in your face, and I'm not sure that I want to. So it's an interesting way to show, you know, simpatico feelings that they probably have with each other, but it doesn't really feel too much like it would be great for a solid romance. But, you know, it, it ends up giving a little bit more credence to confronting one's own shadow or recognizing it through others. But, you know, then Cooper goes in for a kiss with her and she welcomes it. And uh, then he says, you know, let's not talk about trees anymore. And uh, now they're all hot and bothered. And, uh, you know, maybe it's the shadow subject matter or um, or the Audrey's Prayer theme music that's playing right now the uh, the cue for what the love theme is in this half of the season but it all feels fairly awkward and rushed rather than romantic and true the way that this is done in this episode here so after their scene fades to black we get cooper back in the sheriff's station and annie's off to miss twin peaks for dance rehearsals and this is where cooper learns the miss the miss twin peaks queen needs to be protected from wind merle and later during the event annie gives her speech and we get her using the words of chief seattle you know their are words about the uh the the spirit remaining in the woods Again, it's a connection to the Log Lady intro that was not even a twinkle in David Lynch's eye at this point. And we see Cooper looking on proudly to Annie. And this is when we see Earl creeping along the catwalk above. And some of the words are just interesting. You know, like Annie says, we're new warriors, mystic warriors who love the earth and try to save it. You know, the mayor wakes up to the positive applause. You know, we can see that Norma is proud and the dick is moved. And, you know, it really shouldn't, based on those reactions, be a giant surprise when Annie wins it all. And we get Dale's, like, his, his oh shit slow clap. And, um... You know, his total lack of intuition as far as where Wyndham might be. And, you know, now the Cooper's back in a love frequency. Kind of like how Andy was hypnotized by Lana due to Laji possible frequencies. And, um, you know, didn't get his responsibility feelings to deliver the message to Cooper until Lucy declared him responsible enough for fatherhood. We've got Cooper kind of similarly lost from his intuition, possibly due to the... Uh, the, that lucid dream adjacent way that happens when you get enough meditation but still not enough sleep so you're not balanced anymore possibly so maybe he just can't objectively see earl who knows whatever cooper's problem is to connect with the intuition at that point out go the lights and on goes the strobe light and we get the lots of people scrambling and screaming uh we get the explosion sounds the smoke from the floor in multiple places this is where nadine's taken out by a sandbag you know there's periodic further explosions and 
And we do see Doc taking Annie somewhere, but he goes into the smoke and she doesn't quite follow him, it seems. But, you know, she's she basically loses him some way or another. And then she stands still just looking around like a doe in headlights or something. And that's around when Cooper sees Earl as the log lady. And there's a bomb set off by Earl's remote right in front of Cooper, which is disorienting to him. And this is when we see Earl coming in behind Annie and, you know, saying that line, I will help you. And he's got the cloth with the chloroform uh, from behind Annie. And he puts it over her mouth and she screams. But after some struggle, he's obviously in control and he starts pulling her away. And, you know, Cooper starts calling out for Annie. The lights kick back on. And then he and Harry are in the same place again. And um, all Cooper says is, you know, he's got Annie. I guess Cooper saw it all happen while he was disoriented. I'm not, it, it's not exactly clear. Maybe finally Cooper's intuition is kicked back in and he just knows what's happened, even though he didn't see it. I don't know. But, you know, this is when Harry leaves to work with the troopers to catch Earl. And this is finally when Andy swoops in to give Cooper as many keys as Earl had, you know, about the petroglyph also being a map. And finally, Cooper has as much information as Earl does, except, you know, it only happens after Earl finally gets Annie. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much Cooper's path through this plot, anyway, of this episode, and um, Andy's, too. I, I think it's time to, to take a look into Wyndham Earl himself here. You know, my, my second main question, which is, why is Wyndham Earl so much scarier here? So as I said earlier, um, I skipped the nine episodes before this episode um, when they were first airing, and I came back to watch the series finale for old time's sake, essentially. So this right here was the Wynn Merle that 12-year-old me met. You know, the, the line about puncturing Caroline's aorta, you know, it stuck with me. And I'll, <laughs> I'll tell my dog, you know, I will help you to <laughs> just because it makes me laugh, adding a little bit of malice to, you know, when I'm happily like, you know, taking her for a walk or whatever. <laughs> you know, it, it's just funny to me, like saying that. But, you know, that that guy was scary, though, at the time. I was initially just as terrified of Earl and what he was possibly capable of as I was with, you know, Bob even. And, you know, it's like I wouldn't have gotten that experience had I watched some of these earlier episodes where he has all these madcap hijinks. But um, this episode is absolutely different and has the moments that I really had my blood run cold over. You know, it's like I'm glad to see it here, and it still works, but, you know, what is so different from here than in the other episodes? Well, I mean, first of all, we've got, you know, the Major and Leo both captured by him, and it appears to be Earl's house. Yeah, the whole episode started with Leo struggling to free the Major, who, um... You know, not knowing the circumstances gave me the impression to be a difficult capture before now. <laughs> you know, who knows? Maybe it's the horse suit, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so Briggs escapes thanks to Leo. And um, then we get the fade out and in for the time passage. And um, Earl enters the door rather nonchalantly. You know, he says, no punishment for Leo. It's too late for that to do us any harm. And I have a new game for you. And that's when he holds out a bag of spiders in front of his face, covering his face. 
And the, that bag was not a punishment for, um, you know, Briggs escaping. The, this bag was on Leo's calendar already. So, um, you know, I, I kind of think that it was a, a fear harvesting technique that Earl was trying to do there. Talk a little bit about that later, but... Um, the other part about this scene is when Earl moves the bag away from his face again, and he has that pale white skin with the blacked-out mouth and teeth that Tim Hunter mentioned um, in the uh, meta section of, of this podcast episode. And, you know, having watched Firewalk with me, it basically makes me ask, has Earl visited the lodge at this point? I mean, he probably hasn't gone in to make arrangements with the residing entities or anything because um, he only learns that fear is the key in this episode. But there is an outside chance that since Bob was standing outside the circle at the end of episode 27's finale, or, you know, concluding moments, that Earl could have been contacted by that guy. So there is that angle, but more so based on future instances of this kind of uh, face makeup. It seems like an echo that Earl will be in the Red Room in a negative way soon enough. Because we've got Leland right before he kills in Firewalk with me, right before he kills Laura. He And, um, you know, then he's shown in the Red Room when Bob is demanding, or is uh, demanded Garmin Bozio from Gerard and the man from another place. And Laura, also before she's killed when speaking with Harold, um... You know, she she tells him, fire, walk with me. And in the blink of a second later, also saying me in a much more threatening way. And that makes me think of how Robert Engels was saying that the Black Lodge denizens are about two seconds in the past from our time. So there's a certain amount of, you know, being just out of sync with it and also being on a negative plane of reality or frequency. And if that negative frequency is about two seconds behind our time, you know, showing up behind Laura when she says firewalk with me, that kind of all tracks together. But maybe because we're a little bit closer to our world rather than from Laura's point of view in the firewalk with me movie, maybe it's kind of inverted here where... You have echoes like showing up beforehand, you know, kind of like, you know, like echoes radiate from the center of a cross cut outward, uh, forward and backward in time, possibly. And, uh, you know, you have echoes that um, Leland and Laura and here Earl are soon to become uh, part of the landscape of the Red Room. I mean, it, it generally matches up to where Earl is right now. And I also know that Lynch complimented Hunter on the makeup choices, so I would not doubt that this iconography was incorporated from then forward. And, you know, I mean, obviously it'll mean more to find things later as the style choice was used more, kind of like how the jade ring became more than just you wear it, you die. It's just neat that this really scary effect ended up taking on some of the mythology's importance, too, because it's just that cool and just that scary. But it's more than just that intro- that that one moment of uh, white face, black teeth. Um, Earl really is used in a completely different way in this episode. I mean, honestly, the effect he had on me from this episode kind of proves that the... Um, 
the dramatic standoff between Earl and Cooper probably wasn't the best idea from a mood standpoint because that probably would have kept some of these moments from being as scary potentially because it's all loaded about the potential of what he's capable of. You know, a standoff would have just been another Batman-Joker kind of scene. Whereas here, yeah, it's it's all about potential. You know, there, there's just less of him in this episode. You know, most of what he does to prepare is off camera, like the spiders. You know, we don't know where he got them. And, you know, he doesn't explain how he set up the... Uh, the roadhouse for the Miss Twin Peaks competition either. You know, he's he's doing all this stuff under the eye of the camera where we can't see him. And for a change, he's not, you know, telling everybody what he's doing either. And honestly, once he gets to Miss Twin Peaks, you know, once he says he's going to get his queen and leaves Leo, he barely says anything. You know, he subverts the log lady's iconography in a gender swap doppelganger kind of way. And, you know, like a positive negative uh, inversion. Um, he clobbers Bobby fairly savagely after awesomely del- after uh, Bobby off- awesomely delivered the line. Yeah, what did you bring your whole family? Which I love. Earl creeps unseen in the rafters during Annie's speech. And then he orchestrates the explosions and chaos perfectly, capturing Annie easily. And he gets away only saying, I will help you once. And that's it. So, like, you know, he came in there and he took names and kicked ass and whatever else you want to say about him. He did a good job. He was a good villain right there. And, I mean, sure, he did still get one of his monologues here. Um, you know, when um, when Cooper's making connections in the sheriff's station, we do see Earl reacting on the other end of the bonsai tree to Dale's idea that... Um, Bob was attracted to fear, and he says, Eureka, Dale, I could kiss your pointy little head. And, you know, this is when he closes the briefcase, and he's done observing Cooper and Harry, because now he has all the information he needs. And he says, it's fear, Leo, my favorite emotional state, and all this time it's been staring at me right in the kisser. So he absolutely loves Dale's theory and feels that it's true. And then, you know, he'll say, we know where the entrance is. We know when the lock appears, and now we hold the key in our hands. So he's re- he readies himself to go. He takes the briefcase, and he goes to get his queen and embark on our dark honeymoon. So he knows that he's taking Annie with, her, with him into the Red Room, or, you know, at least the Black Lodge, he thinks. And this is when he says, I haven't been this excited since I punctioned Caroline's aorta. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, sure, it's verbose, but it's really the only monologue that he gets in this episode, and it's about the final piece that he needed before he abducts someone. So maybe a little on the overwrought, especially, you know, considering his final goodbye to Leo involved a bunch of scaffolding. And, you know, he says plenty of time for Leo to think about what he's done and uh, what Leo thinks is a death trap with the spiders above his head. You know, honestly... That's just desserts for how Leo left Shelly in the mill right before the fire started that was supposed to kill her then. So, you know, the the rhyming with, you know, Leo's being inverted in that sort of scenario, that kind of over-the-top works with Earl. You know, especially because, you know, he appears to be effective, he is effective, and the rest of the episode, everyone is also just speaking about him. You know, we're left to react to the state that he put Briggs into. 
You know, Briggs incoherently wanders into the street. Hawk brings him to the station. Major Briggs is just in a blanket, and he's got these shaky hands barely barely hanging on to the water he's supposed to be drinking that he hands to Harry. And Briggs checks out okay physically somehow, but Cooper notices the effect of Haloperidol, which is the stuff that Philip Gerard was on to suppress Mike, and probably what Earl took to... Um, seem crazy enough to be put into a mental hospital after he kills Caroline. And of course, Don Davis is going crazy with the shaking and the shaking hands and his, uh, his cheeks and everything. And, you know, Cooper asks if Wyndham Earl did this to him. And, you know, he only responds, Garland? Odd name. Judy Garland? So, you know, Briggs is so out of it, he can't even recognize aspects of himself as simple as his own name. And, you know, obviously it's a Wizard of Oz nod, too, to, to you know, make Lynch a little happier. But, you know, then we get Cooper asking, did Wyndham Earl do this to you? And all Briggs says is, it was God, I suppose, which to me is a nod to the autobiography. And uh, that one vagrant who had seen... Earl and Caroline while she was abducted and, um, you know, they were still searching for her. The, um, the vagrant that they pick up in the interrogation room was essentially told by Earl that Earl was God and showed what he had done to his angel, Caroline. So, um, you know, that, that's essentially how the confused vagrant stated it when he was questioned by Dale and the others. But, you know, then we get a few scenes where Dale makes the intuitive leaps to get into protecting the Miss Twin Peaks queen from Earl and Andy knocking over the bonsai tree. And they figure out that they've been working for Earl from the beginning. And, um, yeah, we just see Earl officially running laps around the law enforcement guys, and they now know it. And talking about it like, you know, now they know things, there have been a lot of metaphorical moments where there are keys in this episode and locks, and it extends way further than Earl and Cooper having these moments. So, like, my next question is simply, just how many different levels of keys are we working with? And the episode starts out with a literal one with Leo. You know, Leo, he stretches himself out while he's chained by one arm to the wall. Um, and he gets the key after a bunch of struggle, but it's not for him. He, he tests out the major shackles and it works on those. But, you know, for a change, Leo does not make it about himself. He just tells Briggs, save Shelly. So... Empathy now officially exists for Leo, and it's not now unlock mine. You know, like, he's not telling Briggs to find the other key. He just wants uh, Shelly to have a good chance at this. And then he stays chained up, and he's just staring at the uh, Queen of Spades card that has Shelly's face taped in it. So, yeah, they're giving Leo a chance to kind of turn against his old ways. But, you know, just because he's seeing beyond a shadow now doesn't mean he's not paying for his shadow from earlier. And in this case, he pays it forward. <laughs> uh, and it's repaid because Briggs's first main contribution to Cooper's and Harry's conversation at the station is to protect the queen. Which is, you know, basically the mission Leo tasks him with, you know, save Shelley, debt repaid. And honestly, starting with that um, quest from Leo, 
you know, it's like, how conscious is Major Briggs through all of this? You know, the blind wandering in the road could technically be the major on autopilot after getting his mission, you know, doing a straight line homing beam to uh, the sheriff's station, maybe. And in the station, he could just be auto-responding to Cooper's words with, you know, what he knows could be helpful. You know, in a lot of ways, it's not totally different from how Cooper Dougie works. You know, just saying like a choice couple of words as response to, you know, full paragraphs that people say around him. And just like Cooper Dougie, Briggs basically just had people helping him, you know, like Hawk, you know, swooping in to get him where he needs to be without even being asked. It just kind of happens. It's like how Bill and Candy Shaker at the casino give Dougie enough clues uh, for the limo driver who is helping him get home, uh, find his home. And yeah, the Cooper and Earl plot is basically made out of little unlocked moments like this. You know, Cooper's understanding of fear and the role of Josie's death, possibly unlocked from meditation. That um, that idea unlocks the uh, the key that Earl needs to know how to unlock the queen to be a key in the lodge. And eventually Andy's 4-H question unlocks Cooper's intuition about the planetary conjunctions, which unlocks Briggs's protect the queen and things that he heard from Earl about the planets, as well as Andy's thoughts that the petroglyph is a map. So it all kind of stems from Leo developing a little bit of empathy. And, you know, Andy being himself. Looking a little bit closer at our new Miss Twin Peaks, Annie, Aunt, uh, Norma introduces the concept of winning Miss Twin Peaks and, you know, giving in to the love frequency with Dale when she asks for help with her speech, possibly opened her mind to the intuition to write and perform a speech that unlocks the win Norma may have helped her manifest all within less than six hours. And that frequency, you know, could have also unlocked Cooper's intuition wider so that he was able to make more leaps to understand Earl's plan. Though for Annie, she becomes the vessel for Norma's ideal victory, which means she becomes the ideal vessel for becoming Earl's key. So um, maybe it wasn't just a love frequency that Cooper and Annie were imbibing in when when they were having their moment in his room. Maybe either in addition to love or instead of love, maybe it was appetite. Now looking more at the Miss Twin Peaks competition, we've got the mayor, Norma, and Dick discussing the qualities that most exemplify Miss Twin Peaks, which are the keys to unlocking a winner. The mayor says beauty and power, uh, Dick says poise and God help us sophistication and breeding, which is, ooh, Dick, not a good move, but, you know, whatever. Um, and then Norma wants originality. So Norma goes to work on the score sheets based on all three of their answers. And because of Norma's wish for healing being positive and for the good of the many rather than just yourself, could this be why it wins over the magic pheromones of Lana Milford? Because if you notice, right after Norma leaves to work on the scorecard, we've got Lana zooming in on Dick to do the storage room prop search. And, you know, in a way, while uh, she's accosting him, you know, Dick basically tries to stay focused way longer than I would have expected him to. But, you know, then the, oh, by George, I think you've got it, the, uh, the My Fair Lady line reading. But, you know, Dick's appetite got the better of him there. 
And, you know, we've got Andy's appetite um, getting the better of him with Lana's hypnotizing contortionistic jazz exotica that we see later on. And, you know, like I said earlier, um, Andy gets snapped back in responsibility uh, when Lucy gifted him with the ability to be the best father ever. And that was enough of a key to unlock Andy's responsibility and get that important information to Cooper. And honestly, Dick had his own better nature unlocked by Andy's speech. You know, the mayor says, this is an outrage. She's been living in this town for about 15 minutes. And what the hell has got into you? And Dick says, she gave a beautiful speech. Inherent in her message were words even the most craven of us could ill afford to ignore. But, you know, the mayor's words there are particularly interesting because Annie had at least supposedly lived in town before her five or so year absence in the nunnery, while Lana has just arrived recently. And, you know, she has put a spell over Mayor and everyone else with her supernatural chanting pheromone powers that are probably related to the Owl Ring, which, you know, Mark Frost heavily implies in Secret History and Final Dossier that she's always associated with people that happen to have the ring, which makes me feel like Lana Milford is a ring bearer in that way. And that ring, which seems to manifest one's appetite for a while before the wearer has a downfall, you know, working with that energy on a regular basis, it's no surprise that Lana's own powers couldn't sustain a victory at the end, you know, except in a possibly delusion-powered reality that I think modern Twin Peaks exist within, but, you know, that's for later, not right here. And, you know, her plan didn't work out because she's kind of on the negative frequency. But I'm going to point out there are other people on Lana's kind of range trying to enact plans here, too. You know, over at the Blue Pine Lodge, we have Pete and Andrew working on vice gripping that metal box, which refuses to buckle while Catherine sits reading the paper while holding a hammer. And, you know, the boys hurt themselves a little bit and Andrew throws the box on the ground. He pulls out a pistol and shoots it open with three bullets. And, you know, there's a pause where they're like, oh, my God, I just did that or whatever they're thinking. And uh, then Pete and Andrew just start laughing about it like boys being boys. You know, Pete reaches into the holes in the box and takes out a key. And at that point, Catherine comes over and takes it, puts it in plain sight under a cake saver because Andrew and Catherine absolutely trust each other to take it themselves and do something about it individually for their personal benefit rather than all of their benefits. And essentially, all they've done is gotten the power to open something in their future. You know, they they put the key under the cake saver and are pleased that they have the power to open something. And Earl gets his queen and he's on his way to open a place that is made of ultimate power for having power? And Lana wants to win Miss Twin Peaks badly, so she can have power of the role. You know, <laughs> you know, having having the power is the end goal for these people that are on a negative frequency, and is made from negative intent rather than for the good of those outside yourself. And maybe that's why Miss Twin Peaks worked out for Norma's wish or her dream, and also why she has troubles manifesting the same kind of thing for a marriage with Ed. 
you know, because she knows that it's hurting Nadine. You know, there, there's a scene in this episode where Nadine is showing off slides of her victories on a wrestling trip. And we find out that Ed and Norma are watching and then Mike's there being supportive and Jacoby's there too. And, you know, maybe they said, you know, tell us about wrestling Nadine just so, you know, everybody can get together in a stealth kind of way. But Jacoby's there to moderate a non-traditional divorce process with someone who doesn't even know when she is, much less that she's married. So Jacoby asks Nadine how she's feeling while these two people are thinking about um, divor- or breaking up. <laughs> and, you know, Nadine, she says she's happy with Mike. They're really hot. In a show, and she's a show business natural, according to Mr. Pinkle. And the the only worry that Nadine has is about Ed being sad, you know, from breaking up, probably. So she's kind of, you know, giving value to Ed's jealousy, or at least, you know, for him to be wanting her in some way. And the response she actually gets is Ed saying, Norma and I plan on getting married. So, you know, there's this weird, dramatic, meandering guitar music cue that begins here and continues all the way through the next scene where Briggs is meandering without seeming to know quite where he is into the street with Hawk. And Nadine's response to Ed is, really? Because Mike and I are getting married too. And this is where she starts squeezing Mike's hand and wrist. And, you know, we hear pops and crack. And, you know, Mike just screams to end that scene. So um, Nadine's dream involves being with Mike and everything, but it involves Ed just as much as her own personal self-discovery. And this meeting here that Jacoby moderated unlocked that part of her inside her, and it's ready to surface with a well-placed sandbag later in the episode. Now, it's not just Nadine having these unsaid truths ready to surface. We've also got it with Donna Hayward. Okay, so her first scene in the episode, Donna's coming down the stairs uh, to her house in this very 1991 dress. And I understand that fashion of today just doesn't understand that thing, but I swear to God, that was the look of the day. I know Mel's uh, from uh, from Damn Fine TV, uh, she cops to having that exact dress in pink. And, um, you know, I, I assure you, at the like, when I saw that, I just went, wow, because, like, that was, like, the pinnacle of fashion back then. I promise it actually was um, highly cool of Donna to be that way. But, you know, she's not concerned about it. And, uh, you know, her mom and dad are standing in the center of the living room, and, you know, they want to hear her speech for the uh, Miss Twin Peaks competition, but she'd rather talk about the truth right now. So, you know, she's given more attitude to her parents about the thing that they continue to refuse to speak to her about and is one of the reasons why this episode feels like it's so stretched out. You know, she wants to know what's going on between uh, Eileen and Ben Horn, but Eileen wants her to trust because she doesn't know all the limitations. So, like, you know, they're they're possibly 
almost saying that they could talk to her sometime, but that there's reasons why they didn't, and now is not the time anyway. But Donna latches on to the word limitations, and she says, I know the the limitations of lying. I know that you raised me to tell the truth. I expect the same from you. Which, you know, absolutely fair, Donna. That's a great point. And, um, you know, they're just silent about it. So after a few seconds, she says... She'll go to Ben Horn for the truth, and then she walks out, and they call after her one time each, while still just standing in in the middle of the room. And, of course, the shot that they're standing right in the middle of is the one where Bob's climbing through their living room over the couch. So it's laced with negativity right down to the camera angle. So this scene unlocks Donna's understanding that the best way to go find the truth is to speak with Ben. And we've got Ben in this episode beginning by coming into his office, uh, speaking to Audrey about the number of holy books that he has with him. You know, the Quran, the, the Talmud, the Bible, uh, the Tao Te Ching. He says, in my hands, those holy books, which constitute the fundamental framework of humanity's philosophy of good, Somewhere in here are the answers that I seek, and I intend to read them from cover to cover until I find, and then he cuts himself off. So yeah, these things, he is looking for the key to the wall that's between him and the understanding of good. And, you know, he starts off on the right foot because he stops him talking about his own quest with zero prompting from anyone else. And that's for the first time in the whole show that's ever happened, I think. And he expresses some empathy to Audrey over her heartbreak. And, you know, this is a Ben in a decent state of mind for providing answers. You know, Donna didn't know how lucky she's got him right now, but... um. Ben is also beginning to respect others' wishes, including the thing that he heard from Will and Eileen about staying away from Eileen and staying away from Donna. So when Donna finds him backstage during the Miss Twin Peaks contest and Donna zooms right up in his business, you know, she she doesn't even give him a hello. She just says, I want to know what's going on with you and my mother. And we've got Ben thinking that the wisest course is for all of them to get together and talk about this, which, you know, is actually sound advice. But, you know, Donna's not having it, and she's not having it at all. And we've got Ben thinking that it's not the time and place. So he's kind of in lockstep with Donna's parents at this point, possibly out of loyalty to their wishes. But, you know, I mean, think about Saturn and Jupiter, Ben. You know, it is the right time and place for pretty much everything. You know, just go for it. But he doesn't know that. I'm just joking anyway. But, you know, here Donna starts laying out what she knows about things. And, you know, he steps closer, you know, hearing about you know his letters that she found and that kind of thing. And uh, he just says, Donna, your mother and I. And then, you know, he just says no more from this point. And she is so fucking done with everything. She just says, you're my father. And she sneers. She turns away. And... In about that much of a pause, Ben had the room to say something or anything when she was still there reacting to what she said. 
But, you know, he's stuck within the letter of the law of Hayward's wishes about non-involvement, and, you know, she just runs down the hall. So, in a similar way to Nadine, the information that she unlocks upends her current understanding of the truth. Except Donna wasn't living in a, a delusion at the time, you know? She wasn't hallucinating some other self. You know, this just essentially ends up becoming Donna's who-are-you-who-are-you-really moment, applying the question to her t- her caretakers now and you know to ben but the thing that'll really get her is she even has to do that to herself but on the other hand back to ben he's on the opposing side of the argument where he's kind of fighting against the power for power's sake packards and is essentially inadvertently on the side of the environment in the early 90s when that is about as pious a position as you are ever going to get. So um, he's in the good guy spot with his energy right now. And, um, you know, things are working well for him aside from this Donna thing. You know, after speaking about wanting to connect with the good things, you know, he shows that empathy to Audrey. And, you know, even after Audrey says, from the bottom of my heart, I do not want to be the town bathing beauty, Ben kind of finds a way to unlock a yes from her uh, joining the competition to spread the anti-Ghostwood message. Because as Ben puts it, Miss Twin Peaks is the ultimate local forum, and it would be excellent if there'd be more to the representative political aspirations, etc. You know, he, he wants more than bathing beauty here. You know, all the things that he lays out that he wants, that's him recognizing that Audrey is capable of having all of these qualities successfully, which means that Audrey sees Ben seeing the whole her for probably the first time in ever. And that is something that she even told Cooper is all she ever really wanted from Ben. So she's winning right now. And, you know, sure, Ben makes a dig here about, you know, the competition needing to be more than a pie recipe. And, you know, that reminds me of Walter thumbing his nose at Norma's idea of wanting to only have one diner rather than a franchise in uh, part 15 of Twin Peaks season three. But, you know, Ben's alignment with Walter in this, I mean, he's a businessman. This whole good thing is new to him. Ben still has a way to go, but you know, yeah, he's, he's on the winning argument in this case. And, you know, he says, help stop Ghostwood and help us to a better day. And Audrey says yes, and enters the competition. And speaking of Audrey, we are on to my next question with, which is what signs do we see of what could have been with Audrey Horn? All right, so yeah, Audrey's getting empathy from her dad, which she's always wanted, and that allowed her to move forward into her new role with their company. And she and Ben are in lockstep that the Twin Peaks saving and loan is going to get bad publicity. But considering the showdown in the lodge that the writers were aiming at, it makes me think about how Audrey was originally planned as Dale's post- episode 16 love interest and how that would logically lead to audrey winning this competition in lieu of annie not even needing to be a character on the show and it makes me want to look into that a little bit more i mean i know i know that means that it would have been audrey being abducted again after episode after episode trapped in one-eyed jacks 
But Major Briggs was abducted twice, once by the White Lodge and once by a bad man, and both of Briggs's abductions took place between episode 17 and now. That's just 12 episodes. So the spacing may have um, made this feel a little more organic for Audrey to have been the one. You know, it would have been less noticeable anyway back when all the video games worth their salt involved saving the girls, so of course Audrey would need rescuing. And honestly, the iconography would have felt right anyway, especially considering how One-Eyed Jacks and the Red Room were pretty much born together in the same episode. And yeah, I know that Annie had sex with Cooper, which according to TV tropes means that she's now open to immense amounts of harm and importance. And thematically, it makes sense to, you know, tie love into appetite and fire. But um, there's still qualities where it would still work that it could have been Audrey, even with Annie in the picture. You know, just like Dale, she'd gone through concentrated concentrate with someone parallel to Dale. And, you know, Audrey's speech was so good, not to mention how her speech is setting the stakes of Dale's next episode. When something you care about is in danger, you must fight to save it or lose it forever. You know, I realize that, um, you know, that scene was used as a, you know, could Audrey be the person? Um, and, you know, she's basically just a red herring, but she ends up only being, you know, I mean, she ends up being thematically important and giving words to Dale's ethic of fighting to save Annie or losing her forever. But, you know, she's still the best red herring ever because imagine Audrey's words coming back to her, you know, coming back on herself as the person, you know, that could be lost forever. And it makes me wish 1991 television was a little bit more, um, you know, seasoned. Because, I mean, what if Dale had his romance with Annie, but then still had to rescue Audrey as an agent, you know? We've got Annie and Cooper, um, you know, this this could jeopardize what they just discovered in order for Cooper to save someone that he has strong platonic love for. You know, it could have expanded the definition of valuable forms of love in storytelling that you could show in a regular TV show. While also, you know, simultaneously baiting a love triangle in the fandom, you know, <laughs> that would have been, uh, I mean, it wouldn't have been a competition probably according to pretty much anybody, but, uh, you know, they, they could have done that, but, you know, I get that in the end, love needed to be paired with a certain kind of fire and a certain, you know, it needed to kind of be what it is for the themes that the writers were working with. So, you know, we got what we got and what we got still works, but I find it interesting that there's still a few remnants uh, left that, um, you know, you could almost see the path that Audrey would have taken, but you know, there's other earlier twin peaks stuff that's being kind of brought to the fore here more on purpose. And we got to go with the last question, which is, what ways do we see Laura Palmer being invoked once again? So yeah, we've got Norma saying that she expects to see Shelley or Annie in the winner's circle. Annie says, dream on. And, you know, Norma actually talks around Laura. She says, we need someone up there who deserves it, especially this year. And Annie, future winner, calls her out exactly by name. She, uh, she says, you mean Laura Palmer? So up to this point... Only James, when he's out of town, 
And I, I don't even think he uses Laura's name now that I think about it. But really, Ben Horn is the only person who uses her name any time after episode 17. And he was obviously intimate with her on multiple levels. Ooh. And, you know, he's in the middle of actively confronting his bad side and trying to squelch it out of existence. But, yeah, that's the only kind of guy who can say her name. But now it came from Norma. And it came from Annie, who is an outsider to the whole town. Laura's name has been said aloud by someone who wasn't even there for her murder. And, um, you know, sure, it could have easily come up when asking Dale, you know, so what brought you to Twin Peaks? You know, plausibility is reasonable that she would know this information by now. But, you know, now that Laura's name has been said aloud, she can be allowed to surface again, you know. After all, Norma's response to Annie is would be a good day for healing. And, you know, Shelley says the massive truth of the whole scene, that needs more than a day. Because time is an element in all of this. It's just baked into the foundation and the mythology even. But that's not the only place that we see Laura surface. You know, in the Miss Twin Peaks competition itself, I know a lot of people have mentioned it these days, but, uh, you know, there's the clear plastic umbrellas, and the clear plastic rain jackets over the girls' uh, Zatanna-style tuxedos. You know, Jasmine from Damn Fine TV jokingly blamed Tim Pinkle for all those umbrellas opening indoors. And she says, you know, this is just an exponential level of bad luck. But the genuine bad luck here is with the ladies all wrapped in see-through plastic just like Laura. And, you know, it's at an event that... I, for some reason, had the understanding of that Laura had won the event the year before. You know, I, I haven't come across that information again since my um, my podcast planning kind of rewatch. Um, and I it wasn't in her diary. So, you know, maybe it was just a note in Secret History of Twin Peaks, or maybe it was just an incorrect assumption on my part. But, um, you know, if, if it's true, it definitely fits because, you know, Laura winning and then dying rhymes with the old ceremonies like the May Queen where, you know, it, it's like that episode of, the South, uh, of South Park where the world sacrificed Britney Spears, essentially, um, her entire celebrity and sanity in order for the crops to grow well this year. You know, it's an old pagan ceremony where, you know, they, um, you know, celebrate the virgin and then they kill her, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, if South Park is riffing at it, you know it's an ingrained part of culture and mythology. It was, it had to have been there with the writers of Twin Peaks, too. And regardless of whether Laura actually won the competition the year before or not, you know, there's definitely... A sacrifice to be made by every Miss Twin Peaks if Norma is any indicator because you know they, the the girls mention um, that this is the 20th anniversary of when Norma won and the contest has a note on it that it's the 20th annual contest and um, that means that Norma was the first winner and we know Norma has sacrificed her whole life basically and a chance with Ed in order to kind of embody her restaurant, you know, it, it became her, uh, her life, you know, it's like, everything's like, you know, like when, when she and Ed are talking together in bed, um, she talks about how she kind of put all her life on hold and put it into her restaurant. So it's an ingrained thought 
about an annual cycle of sacrifice for a good harvest, you know, with or without an overt connection to Laura being the past winner, but it connects well regardless with Laura's presence in Twin Peaks, especially with this competition being perfect at certain thematic levels for being atonement for the town. But, you know, however it ends up going, it's nice seeing Laura's iconography surfacing right before the episode where all the writers knew they were already bringing Laura back in some Black Lodge-related scenes. And before I start talking about all of that stuff, I'm going to stop it here because we are pretty much exiting episode 28 right now, and we are here at the sign-off. You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and 25YL. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, and we would love to connect with you on our various social media accounts. Barely on Facebook, Counter Social and Tribal, slightly more active on Twitter, at Blue Rose TF Pod. And if you really want to find me, I'm at I'm active on Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky at Blue Rose Task Force, and Tumblr at Blue Rose Task Force Pod. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com or our YouTube channel for additional great shows such as Modernist Monastery and Ruminations of Red Rum. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my entire Electricity Nexus column, at 25YearsLaterSite.com or TVObsessive.com. And if you want me to make another mailbag episode, you know, we are getting close to the end of the season after all. I sure would love some help. Send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com or catch me with it on any of the socials. We'll see you next time as we begin to cover Twin Peaks Episode 29, the 30th overall episode of Twin Peaks, and the second half of the original series of finale of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. Sunshine.